Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Well, returning to the podcast once again, we have my very talented friend and an official, also very popular friend of the show, William Boyle is the acclaimed novelist behind such titles as Gravesend, The Lonely Witness, A Friend is a Gift You Give Yourself, City of Margins, and the brand new Shoot the Moonlight Out. In addition to crafting these wondrously humanistic, Lumet-like, character-driven ensemble crime epics, Bill is also quite a pop culture buff and a hell of a good movie trivia game player as well. Bill, thank you so much for coming back to talk movies and congratulations on the new book. How are you doing? How's everything going? And just tell me more about Shoot the Moonlight Out. Sure. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Jen. It's good to be back. And it's always great to talk movies with you and books too. And um, yeah, just glad to be here. It's been, uh, yeah, it's been a good week. The the book just came out this week. So it's been kind of a busy, busy week. Just a lot of, uh, I did an in-person event and I did a bunch of virtual events and, you know, just trying to keep my head above water. Uh, But it's been been pretty, pretty nice week, I guess, for the most part. yeah, shoot the moonlight out is um, it's I think how you described my work on the whole. That was very nice. Thank you. I mean, I think that hopefully is what you know th- that applies to this book. Maybe most most of all, kind of a sprawling ensemble crime drama set in um, Southern Brooklyn and starts in 1996, but the bulk of the action takes place in June 2001. Um, Ooh, okay, just kind of. All these, all these lives, you know, uh, mostly a kind of mix of young, young, young adult, um, you know, kid, kid, almost adult kind of characters, kind of crossing mm-hmm. paths with more defeat, defeated kind of middle-aged people. Um, but yeah, and there, there's a, there's kind of a, an event at the beginning, um, uh, an accidental killing that sparks the whole whole story yeah very Um, very interesting yeah and I love that because we're around the same age you kind of set a lot of your novels in the 90s or in that era when you lived in New York City and also just you know thank goodness before the tech and social media and you're bringing back you know you always reference the music and the movies and the pop culture of the time you feel very at home in your books like right away you know who these people are um you know you feel like you're whisked back right to 1994 or whenever they take place and I love that about your books so I can't oh, wait thanks yeah I really appreciate that and yeah and for me you know I mean definitely music and movies are kind of way into accessing that that feeling um and it's you know that stuff's all over this book too yeah and i know recently you went to france um to celebrate your was it your previous book and then now you're going back again they love you in france and who can blame them that's so great (laughs) thanks yeah it was city city of margins my last book just came out there in september so i was there for 10 days and now i'm going back for uh, 11 um, for a couple of festivals 
So oh, that yeah, is it's so really exciting. It's amazing. It's, it's been pretty, uh, it's always pretty surreal, you know, it's yeah. definitely, you know, the, the, the coolest thing that's ever happened to me as a writer and, and yeah, otherwise in a lot of ways, you know. Yeah, a whirlwind doing all of these events, because if you follow Bill on social and you really should, um, you're going to see um, him share all of these, you know, podcasts or virtual events that he's been doing. I was always curious when you read from your books. Do you like to read the same section? Do you have like a favorite section you like to read or do you mix it up so you don't get bored? How does that work? Yeah, you know, so actually that's interesting because somewhere along the line, my first book came out in um, 2013 and somewhere around 2016 or 27, the, the kind of trend at readings stopped being to, you know, to read from your books and it started just being conversations with another writer which, oh, okay. um, which I thought, you know, so for the most part in the last few years, I've not read a ton from any of my books when I'm at readings. Um, occasionally I have, okay. um, and I did this week, I, this week I actually did because the person I was supposed to do the conversation with wound up not being able to do it. So mm. I did a reading and it was actually kind of fun to dig back into that way of doing it and figure out what excerpts I wanted to read. And so this was, this was, you know, the first time I read from this book and, and maybe it'll be the only time I read from it because everything else is virtual conversation stuff. Oh, that's fascinating. Look at me. I'm totally uncool with the, the way that the publishing world is moving, but I love that. Recently. No, yeah, I think it, I think it was just kind of people got tired of just oh, that, that. Yeah, that way. I mean, it was just that way of doing it for a long time. And then I guess people just got, wanted to mix it up a little bit, which is cool. You know, it was always cool to kind of uh, harass uh, another writer pal yeah. into doing a conversation with you, but you know, it can also be a lot, a lot to put on them too. So that's it's, true. it's also, you know, it's nice to do it this way. And I love seeing you um, mention some of the other writers you're working with, usually similar uh, who's with your publisher, but also your friends. Like you have one with Megan Abbott next week. You had, um, a couple recently with friends that's got to be a blast yeah it's always that's always you know just really fun and I like doing it the other way too obviously for other people's books when they come out yeah yeah it, it's great wonderful well recently I spoke with Jason Bailey and Karina Longworth about their creative processes and before we go into today's topic of Nicolas Cage, I thought I would ask you the same question as well, because you are so prolific, Bill. How do you prefer to plot, write, work? What is your schedule like? I know you work in the mornings. Yeah, I tend to I tend to work, try to work in the mornings when I'm that's kind of my best time to at least get the actual writing done. I, I you know, I like to do other stuff in the afternoons, like revision and just kind of figuring out problems i guess um so yeah i mean it's just kind of i don't i don't really ever feel like i have a a clear process you know i kind of work wherever wherever is comfortable at the time uh, very often it's just the dining room table or the kitchen yeah. table i get up at five when i'm working on a book and i i kind of uh write you know write as long as i can before um things start trying to get in the way um and yes i mean i try to when i'm in a book when i'm in a draft of a book i think i'm you know trying to write a thousand words a day at least and 
Um, I've found that that I don't, I'm not big on, on word count stuff, but, um, I just find that that's around where I, that's about the best I can do just in terms of quality. If I go too much beyond that, unless I'm really, really feeling good about what I'm working on, then I kind of burn out after about a thousand words or sometimes 1500 or 2000 words. Um, I mean, when I'm working on a book, I like to be in it every day. If I can be, I try not to get you know, too distracted by other stuff. And last year, obviously that was easy because I wasn't going anywhere. I wasn't traveling. I wasn't Mm -hmm. leaving the house even much except to, you know, walk, um, outside. So, um, it was pretty easy to stay disciplined and scheduled and not let things throw me off track. Um, you know, I like to, I like to try to write a draft, you know, in three or four months if I, if I can. Um, and then, you know, get into the work of revision, but, um, I mean, the most important thing to me usually is just kind of, you know, finding, you know, doing that kind of that, having that schedule, but also kind of feeding myself creatively during the process, watching a lot of movies, reading a lot of books and listening to a lot of music. And so that's, that's about it. Yeah. One of my favorite things that I remember you sharing, I don't know if it was on the podcast or in another interview, or maybe just in our, you know, everyday conversation, was you were talking about how you personally prefer when you're writing, unless you're really into a scene, kind of ending when you still want to keep going a little bit to give yourself a reason the next day, like, get really excited, like, ooh, I get to pick up that moment again and I thought yeah. that was cool because I think sometimes writers will just stay with it until they burn out and that might be a, a way to be a little defeatist actually yeah yeah no that that's something I think I I don't know when that kind of took hold for me but it was it was fairly early on I guess just that realization that you know if you empty the tank there you know it's hard to go back to it it's yeah, hard to want to go back smart. to it but if you're excited to go back to it, it's just like reading a book. Like you just can't wait to get back to what you're invested in, you know? Yeah, no, that's a good way to go. Well, when we were coming up with theme ideas, we had several to choose from and a few of our contenders, including John sales in the nineties are so good that we will definitely be tackling them in the podcast third or 2022 season. But particularly after past episodes we completed on actors Mickey Rourke and David Morse, we thought it might be especially good to talk about the work of one of America's best character actors of the past 40 years. And incidentally, a man who starred in a great number of films that I've delved into with various guests over the past hundred or so episodes. This actor, Nicolas Cage, is not only one of my all-time favorites, but he's also the first whom I vividly recall seeing as a child in a live action movie on the big screen. I know I'd seen other films like The Journey of Natty Gann in the theater as a girl, but for whatever reason, and although I remember little else about that first viewing, I will never forget the energy and magnetism that came from the screen and filled the auditorium of Moonstruck, even though I was just six years old at the time, whenever Nicolas Cage hit that screen. 
We will be, of course, discussing that movie along with the others that you chose, including Valley Girl, Wild at Heart, Red Rock West, and Joe in a moment. I know we're going to reference several others, but before we get into that, I would love to know what it is you find so magical and compelling about Nicolas Cage as an actor that makes him just so fun to watch. Uh, Yeah, I mean, he, so the idea for doing this came to me when I um, heard that podcast that our, our friend Megan Abbott shared with me. Um, I think it was just a Hollywood reporter podcast um, called awards chatter. And it was a, kind of one of a, one of the first long form interviews I'd ever really heard with him. I'd, I'd read profiles, I'd read interviews, but I'd never really heard him talk at length, uh, maybe in a couple of kind of like Blu-ray extras, DVD extras. Um, and just listening to him, I just, it just clicked how much, I mean, I, I know I've always loved him. I've always loved him as an actor for as far back as I can remember, but hearing him talk about his process and hearing him talk about acting, uh, it just clicked for me how much he's had an impact on me creatively. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, he, he is, uh, he's one of those actors that has kind of, always been there I think um I was thinking today that if there you know there's kind of no equivalent for me in terms of how long I've loved him and how many interesting things he's done and how many phases he's had maybe like someone like Bob Dylan could I could oh, be that's a, a great comparison yeah a point of comparison because he started so young he he's gone through these like his action movie phase is like Bob Dylan's Christian record yeah. phase or something <laughs> um you know, and he just got it just cage goes it's, electric. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, it's just uh, it's it's wild. And looking at his filmography, you know, um, I, I guess I I'm trying to I was trying to remember what the first movie of his I saw would have been. Probably, I mean, you know, I I, I went back and saw things like Rumblefish and Valley Girl probably a little later, but I mean, I'm imagining that Peggy Sue Got Married was my introduction to him. I definitely saw that before Moonstruck, but probably, you know, kind of the one, two of those movies. Um, I'm just a little, I think I'm a little bit older than you. So I was probably 10 or whatever when Moonstruck came out. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, he, he was just somebody I loved right off the bat. And then certainly by, you know, by wild at heart, um, I got into David Lynch really young. And when wild at heart came out, that just kind of, cemented everything for me and you know every every Nicolas Cage movie I think in the 90s especially was was an event for me you know I always loved going to you know and I didn't know what he was going to do I didn't know if it was going to be a romantic comedy or a crazy action movie or you know and then leaving Las Vegas came out of nowhere and then bringing out the dead is I think maybe you know the best of the best um as far as he goes um, and then, you know, and then it gets wild in the 2000s and his, his, he's a, he's just a, one of those actors that even when he's doing movies that are not great is just always fascinating to watch, I think. Um, and he is, um, yeah, he's just, I find him just very, very exciting to, to watch. I, I've always have as far as I can remember. And I always just feel kind of great great joy watching him even when it's dark stuff Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, he's unafraid to go for those highs and lows. He kind of reminds me of a classic film actor in that sense. Um, Sometimes, you know, new actors give, quote unquote, movie star performances or they're unwilling to go there. Cage never is. He's um, not worried about, I mean, there's the thing, and of course, especially in the action movies where you can tell he wants to look cool. And I've heard stories, you know, and he's a very cool guy, but he's also completely willing to put his heart on his sleeve and play something like Peggy Sue Got Married, which Cher called like a two hour car crash, the performance as you're watching it. But that was the performance she saw. And she was like, this is the guy for Moonstruck, which is unbelievable. Or when he was playing like a live action cartoon in Raising Arizona or just some of the choices he was making early on were all over the place and they keep things interesting. He doesn't devalue things just because they're commercial either. And I I like that about him. It's probably pretty easy for some actors to just kind of phone it in. You don't really get that with Cage. And I love that about him. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and one of the things he talks about in that interview is just kind of, I think, Uh, especially in the 80s still probably a lot of young actors were really under the sway of trying to be the next Brando the next James Dean and Nicolas Cage was you know uh, even though he has some things I think in common with those actors he was unafraid of you know being operatic and he was really influenced by silent film actors and 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 punk rock and like all these other he he had all these varying influences that came into what he was doing and um, there's just really infectious enthusiasm for for performance and for art and um, yeah I don't know it's just it's uh, it's just wonderful to to watch him. He's a wonderful actor. But kicking things off in chronological order, we have Nicolas Cage's first lead and second major feature film. His second in a row, directed by a woman as well, after a supporting turn in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Uh, This movie we're talking about is director Martha Coolidge's fast, funny, and still fresh 1983 teen romantic comedy Valley Girl as Randy, the Hollywood Boulevard punk who finds himself falling for the beautiful Valley Girl Julie, played by Deborah Foreman. Cage turns in a sexy, sweet, and at times soulful turn that in anyone else's hands might have come off as surface level or one note, but not so. Coolidge's movie with its appealing cast, great soundtrack and impressive script is still as enjoyable as ever. And I know you're a fan of it as well. So tell me more about Valley Girl. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I love Valley Girl. And this is, yeah. this is my, my second Martha Coolidge movie on the podcast. Um, so I did Angie too last time. Um, That's right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I love it. And I think I, I kind of loved it. I definitely loved it right away whenever I first saw it, but then um, I went a long stretch of time probably without revisiting it and um, rewatched it a few years ago and was just kind of totally blown away by it all over again um, in a new way, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's just, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great movie. It's just, it's a lot of fun. Nicolas Cage is a big part of what um, I think really brings it to life. And Deborah Foreman's wonderful too. And yes. I heard, I heard some interview um, with Cage where he talks about um, just being totally in love with Deborah Foreman. Yes. So every, <laughs> uh, every emotion you see on the screen is, is absolutely real. 
mm-hmm. he said. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I chose this one because I'm, I'm always, you know, coming back to the, the Dylan comparison, I'm just blown away by how young he is here and how in command he is. I mean, he's, I think he was 17 maybe when he, he shot it. Yep. Um, and you know, it's, it's like, it's, it's exactly like seeing young Dylan. I mean, it's like this guy just had it just right mm-hmm. out of the gate, just had it. And, um, it was, I think, you know, really the first, I think it was the first movie where he was billed as Nick Cage. Um, if, if not, I think it was you're right. The, yeah. 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 I think um, it was it Nicholas was, Coppola before that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I think it was, um, you know, I I've heard him and I think it's in that interview that I mentioned the podcast interview, he talks about making that change because people were writing him about the Coppola connection mm-hmm. and, um, and Martha Coolidge admitted after the fact that she probably wouldn't have given him the time of day if she'd, she'd seen that was his name. And, mm-hmm. um, so he, you know, he, he says he, he made the right call there, but you can really just see him fully formed here. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's, you know, especially watching, you know, rewatching all the movies that I, I picked for this, you know, watching that movie, which is, um, you know, whatever, 10, 30 years before Joe, you know, the same, he's the same actor in a lot of ways. He's just, he's fully formed uh, out, mm-hmm. out of the gate at 17. And it's just, um, it's so exciting to watch him and, you know, the, there's just a, a great joy and that he brings to, um, to the performance and to the film, you know, it's, it's a, it's a film I think that is, I love it. Um, but I'm kind of less interested when he's not on the screen. Um, I agree with certain- you. Yeah. It's a movie about first love and it's also kind of, um, a sense of discovery. He talked about his relationship with Deborah Foreman. I think they dated when they were making the movie or else he was just madly in love with her. He's talked about her over the years and it's been very cute, but it's also a man sort of discovering his own craft and what he can do with it. Um, you know, you have Randy and Juliet. It's basically Romeo and Juliet, but for the eighties yeah. it's um, so I think some people were ready to dismiss it on that level, but Cage brings just this authenticity to it even though he was talking about how he was still trying to figure it out on the Blu-ray. There's a really great interview. That's about 20 minutes long with him and Martha yeah. Coolidge. Yeah. Where he talks about um, being in a scene in the club before it became the Viper room and how there was a problem on set and he was stuck in the bathroom for like 90 minutes and he was psyching himself up and he was doing this audibly just for a scene where he walks out heartbroken And so some of the people on set were making fun because they could hear him through the bathroom, like talking to himself (laughs) about like being, you know, desperate for this woman he's in love with. And and so when he came out, they're like, oh, it's so hard to be an actor. And they kind of teasing him a little bit. And um, but, you know, he was he was learning his way. He talks about the most important note that he received from Martha Coolidge was um, the scene where. He and uh, Foreman are outside her house and they're like breaking up, but it, you're not sure if it's definite. And she gave him this really precise kind of note, which was something like hurt, but not defeated. And he said that was the most important insight into the character. And he said it, it also helped him for the rest of his career. 
because he said, I kept going back to that idea of hurt, but not defeated and playing most of the people or he's attracted to that kind of um, yeah. personality. And you can see it in all of these characters and started with Valley Girl. So yeah, like exactly what you were saying. Had yeah, and just, just a total, um, just a total, I mean, this is one of the main things I think I've always loved about him. And this comes back to what you were saying earlier about him always treating genre seriously too there's just yeah. total sin sincerity mm -hmm. um you know in in all of his performances from the best to the to the weakest uh, i mean not the not that the performances are ever weak i don't think but some of the movies are um you know he, there's just total total commitment total sincerity you always get the sense that he's giving a hundred percent and that really i mean it starts here it's just a it's a performance that he's he's thrown himself fully into mm -hmm. and it's a character that like you know I, if somebody else had played this character it's kind of a you know it could have gone another way i mean you know the character stalkery. yeah yeah he's a stalker <laughs> like you know for a good stretch there yeah and, you know cage i mean with with it in cage's hands it's somehow not as troubling as it should be, should be, yes. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. He's always showing up on her dates and stuff like that. And, you know, I mean, Mark Wahlberg, fear everybody, but it's yeah, not yeah. at all. It's just this uh, puppy dog cage performance, but no, exactly. And I wonder, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they mentioned this in the, I haven't watched that Blu-ray extra in a while, but there are those scenes like, like those scenes where he's wearing the 3d glasses at the movie theater. And when he's at the, the little drive up, um, fast food joint where I mean, it seems like almost cage ad libs um, you know the things he's saying that are kind of nonsensical and, and wild they are strange yeah yeah but your faces he was uh, kind of I mean you're always going to pick on yourself we are our own worst critics and yeah. so watching cage uh, he has some criticism for uh, the film he's like I I swore like a trucker in that movie. Like, was it just because I'm 17? He's like, I said, fuck every other word. And he said, so when he watches the movie, I mean, there's that really famous line, you're fucking friends. And the way he says it, of course, is great. A lot of people will do that impression when they think of Valley Girl. It's cage yelling yeah, yeah. that. Um, but yeah, so he has some issues with, with his language, but it is kind of the teenage thing. It is a 17 year old finding his way. And yeah, there's just a lot to love about the movie. The soundtrack is so good. Uh, I mean, it's, yeah. It's an amazing yeah. soundtrack and it's a great, you know, I, I've, I've only been to LA once. So I'm, I guess I'm not qualified. Me too, to right? It. Yeah. It's a great LA movie, but it feels like a great LA movie to it me. Does. Um, you know, it's, it's a just really great. Um, location stuff and all the stuff in the club is so good. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, it's it's uh, it's great. And it's one of those movies that's really gotten even better for me over the years. Uh, you know, I've rewatched it a few times um, just over the last couple of years, and I always just have a great time with it. Yeah, I love the patience that she shows in um, using the environment to establish character. Like yeah. you were just saying about LA movie. I mean, we can probably talk to our friends like Travis and Jordan and, and Rob about uh, being in LA and how true it is. But there's this wonderful scene where the first night he's cruising with Julie and his buddy and this other girl who is yeah. also 
and they're just driving down Hollywood Boulevard and he's like interacting with random people. <laughs> and you're kind of wondering, like, you know, were some of those extras just shouting stuff or like, how did that work? <laughs> but it's, it's magical. I mean, it kind of reminds me of the last scene um, at the concert at the beginning of Almost Famous where the kid is just so glad that he's connected with people that he's trying to talk to everybody like the yeah, wheel yeah. man the wheel <laughs> or he's just shouting things until um Perusa Balk is like be cool or no no it was uh Kate Hudson's like be cool yeah. and um <laughs> but you know that's just this character Randy just is a friend of everyone I guess yes yeah I love that scene so much where he's just yes. where he just looks <laughs> like I mean it looks like everybody knows him yeah. knows him but it also seems like yeah they just they must have just shot that and had extra screaming at, screaming at the <laughs> or just or just people on the street screaming at yeah at him. um it's yeah. A, yeah it's such a such a good scene i know yep it's a wonderful film is there anything else we want to add about valley girl before we go on i mean I, yeah I don't, nothing i can think of i yeah. mean i just yeah i really i chose it because it is um you know it's it's the first I think it's the first great, you know, real full-blown yep. mm-hmm. character that he plays. It's just, you know, it's interesting to, I think, bookend this with Valley Girl and then something like Joe. Um, Show his which range. Is, you know, yeah. I mean, it's just, uh, it's incredible. What an incredible career that's just continuing to be. Yes. You go to strange, unexpected places. Yep. That's what we love about him. But next up, we have one of my all-time favorite romantic comedies and a perfect film for this time of year in director Norman Jewison's 1987 Oscar winner Moonstruck, which takes an operatic look at love through various members of a multi-generational Italian-American New York household, where Cher's unlucky widow gets engaged to a man she respects but does not love in the form of Danny Aiello a practical bookkeeper eager not to repeat any of the mistakes of the past that she believes happened when she married for love. When Aiello sends Cher to go invite his estranged brother, Ronnie, played by Nicolas Cage, to their wedding, Cher finds herself quickly seduced by this passionate, disabled, fiery bread maker, impulsively falling into bed with him and maybe just as quickly falling into love. Also starring Olympia Dukakis, John Mahoney, and more. It's impossible not to love screenwriter John Patrick Shanley's heartfelt, very funny tale of romance in New York. So what are your thoughts on Moonstruck? I know you love it. Oh, yeah, I've loved it for, I mean, as long, it was one of those movies, I think, that really, you know, that rare movie as a, as a kid that, you know, everybody in my house loved, mm-hmm. you know, that I, I connected with and, and my mom loved and my stepdad loved and even my grandparents liked, um, you know, it was, uh, it was just right out of the gate. It was something I um, really responded to. And again, I think I was maybe 10 when it came out and saw it pretty quickly. I think I, I probably saw it in the movie theater um, if not, I saw it soon, soon after that. Um, and, you know, growing up in Brooklyn, I, you know, it was, it was just kind of the, a movie that everybody was talking about. And Vincent Gardino was from my neighborhood. So he was kind of like a local, you know, there's a street named after him or Avenue named after him a couple of blocks from my house. So it was just, oh, it was, a, yeah, it was a big, it was a big event. Um, you know, it was a big, just one of those movies that was totally 
in the air, um, or, you know, around them. And, um, and, and it's a movie that I've returned to a ton over the years. And, um, like I said earlier, probably, you know, initially probably only maybe the second or third movie I'd, I'd seen with Nicolas Cage. And I loved Cher. You know, you know I, I still think, you know, that front of movie she was in, um, especially in the eighties and early nineties was just, you know, incredible. incredible. And, yeah. Um, and, you know, just, uh, Olympia Dukakis is amazing in it, but, but, Going back to it now, I definitely, I definitely, um, as as brilliant as Cher is in it, um, and as brilliant as Olympia Dukakis is, and Danny Aiello and everyone else, I, I just Cage really um, mm-hmm. just is something else to me. I mean, it's that, it's truly that that kind of, and I know he was influenced by um, the uh, what do you call the Beauty and the Beast, the Pacto um, and the yeah, German Cocteau Expressionists Cuban. as well, yeah, Fritz German Lang, yes, yeah. <laughs> and um, you know, it's just a just a totally operatic, beautiful performance that, um, again, was. I mean, I know, I know it was. Uh, you know, having heard him talk about it, I know it was risky, and I know people questioned it, like they questioned pretty much everything he did during that stretch. It was interesting again in that, in that interview to hear him talk about how he had no, he didn't want to do it. He was so young, which I forget. Um, and he's 24. He was a little young for that role. Exactly. Um, which is wild to think about. And so he had this kind of punk mentality where he didn't want to do what he thought of as a kind of cheesy romantic movie at that time and um basically i think you know what he says in the interview anyway is that he said he you know if, if he could do vampire's kiss then he would do moonstruck um mm-hmm. that's what he told his his agent or his manager or whoever and now looking back at it he says he, he really you know connects with it on a different level that he didn't connect with it on then but it's such a it's such a beautiful performance and just such a, i mean it comes you know it is a it is a kind of fairy tale um story and he has got that you know he brings that kind of energy to it yeah he really swings for the fences um just like valley girl was a little bit of a romeo and juliet this one i mean they're touching on like lava Wem and also beauty and the beast i guess originally the shanley script was called the bride and the wolf and yeah. so yeah so they were really going for those fairy tale elements there's something about Cage that kind of um, gravitates to these, whether or not he wants to admit it. And I also, I love that this movie, again, with Olympia Dukakis and Sherry of people who aren't Italian playing Italian, wasn't made by an Italian, you have, but it's one that everyone can relate to, kind of the way that sort of the younger generation and everybody around the world related to my big fat Greek wedding or... Um, crazy rich Asians, like basically, you know, everyone has a family, everyone has a neighborhood. We all have superstitions. We're all trying to, you know, not repeat the mistakes of the past. I I love this film. It's just every time I watch it, I find something new to kind of zero in on. And I also think it's one of the most daring screenplays because it is written at such an operatic level. I mean, I can't imagine. Basically, Jewison talks about by the time he got the script, 
how many coffee stains he was seeing on this thing. And he's like, that's how many times people had read it and passed. And so when he got it, he was like, what is the bride and the wolf? And it's full of coffee. Nobody wants to do this thing. <laughs> but he saw it. And I love that the first time we met with Shanley, they basically read it out loud together. And by the end, realized they were on the same page. They kind of divided the, the cast, like you're playing half the roles, I'm playing half the roles. And it's, it's one you need to almost hear. And it's one that he used kind of theatrical background in blocking. They acted everything out, a lot of rehearsal process, working on lines. I mean, by the time they actually shot it, you can tell this feels like a family. And that's probably yeah. why we connect to it so easily. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, I mean, it is a, it's a brilliant script. And I love John Patrick Shanley um, as a writer and as and as a director too in the the couple he's directed um well i haven't seen the recent one he directed that Irish oh movie, wild right? mountain yeah. time that was uh, yeah i but i i love i love joe versus the volcano and i love doubt um oh, and i doubt think in a lot amazing. of oh it's brilliant yeah and i think shanley in a lot of ways shanley and cage are kind of a perfect match for each other um, yeah in terms of because shanley you know i think maybe people who haven't watched Moonstruck in a while forget just how weird it is. It's a oh, it's deeply so weird. Yes. It's deeply weird movie, which is one thing I love about it. And in that way, it's just a perfect match for Cage, who is, a, you know, and I mean this in the mo in the, as a high compliment because I love weirdness um, is a weird, you know, is a weird actor and a weird performer yeah. approaches things in a kind of oblique way. And that material is just perfect for him. You know, he could go, mm -hmm operatic with this character that could have been again you know as in valley girl something else entirely in the wrong person's hands yeah and he's able to access that level of just emotion and how genuine he is like right off the bat like danny aiello in an interview said as soon as i met him um and i think he kept calling him nikki coppola and i i love that you know you have to hear aiello say it but he's like as soon as yeah. i met nikki you know, I just wanted to pick him up and hug him. And he said, he's just <laughs> one of those people. Like he said, I'm not one of those guys, but as soon as you, you meet him, you just, you know, you want to embrace him and he's able to kind of tap into that. You know, he's essentially like an open heart essentially. Yeah. This. And he's trying to be cynical, just like Loretta, the, uh, the share character is as well, but it's a facade. And yeah, I think it's, really interesting to watch this and then of course vampires kiss which i just talked about a few months ago with elizabeth cantwell in an episode and also mandy i've done adaptation with walter Chaw. so we've touched on a lot of these great cage performances and i know we're gonna talk about more because how can you not yeah yeah no and i mean the the, the problem with him really is just having to choose there's just so many so many yes. good ones um, but yeah, this is, I mean, this is truly um, just, it's a, it's an incredible performance. And for me, a lot of, you know, there is that real warmth with him. And, and I think probably one of the things I kind of hooked into first, aside from just his expressions was his voice, um, which yes. is just a really, he's got a really just something, something about his voice um, is just different from you know most there's a warmth to it a genuineness to it that um just pulls you in and that was a thing i definitely caught on to i think as a kid even if i couldn't articulate it 
Mm-hmm. No, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. 1987. This movie came out, it opened the exact same day as broadcast news. And it's just like, what was going on that year for just amazing performances, romantic comedies, when we still made sophisticated romantic comedies of this level, but films that, you know, the, the more years go by, the older you get, you see new things every time you watch it. So yeah, I would recommend if you're just kind of looking at these 80s movies, if you're filling in some gaps, uh, Moonstruck and broadcast news for this year, you you mentioned the weirdness. And I was also remembering uh, our friend Rob Belushi had never seen this one. And after uh, Priscilla Page and I talking about it on Twitter so much last year, I think it was around Christmas, he actually watched it with his mom and possibly his grandma as well. And he was like texting me during it and after like, this is insane. Like uh, he chewed off his hand. Like he was just, I was getting all these crazy uh, great reactions. And then at the end, he's like, Jen, this is a weird movie. And so because we've seen it so many times, it is kind of easy to forget just how strange it is. But then, yeah, if you're just approaching it, you're like, this is a wild movie and they were taking risks and Cage is right there with it. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I think it's I think it's a movie that a lot of people, especially probably younger people, brush off as maybe like a saccharine romantic comedy. Yeah. Or something not knowing what it what it actually actually is. Um, Mm -hmm. And it is. It's just. It's this, you know, it's it's a bizarre kind of, you know, folktale-ish, fairy tale-ish, um, you know, wild operatic thing. Um, yeah. It's just, yeah, it's 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 so good. It's just so so rewarding every time. Rewatching it this time, I was just, like you said, I mean, I always find something that I feel like I'm kind of connecting with for the first mm-hmm. time. A line that a line that hits me a different way, or 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 whatever. Yeah. And it's also kind of the product of Shanley filing away all of these little details, like on um, one of the extras on the Blu-ray release. I don't have the criterion. If you're listening, anyone, I'm sure it's wonderful. I need to get it. But yeah, I do. On, it's really good. Yeah. On the MGM release, there is a cool um, behind the scenes feature. Uh, feature where they're talking to Shanley and he's picking up on little aspects of yeah you know uh, growing up I would hang out with all of my Italian American friends and they would just you know bring me over and I would be basically adopted by their families and eating wonderful food and so (laughs) he said I don't know I guess I was filing some of this stuff away and he also knew somebody who lost a hand in like a bread machine uh, incident and then Um, somebody else uh, worked as a baker and a bookkeeper and this and that. And so there were these little things he was filing away, kind of like I would imagine you as a writer over the years in New York, uh, remembering interesting characters. And so I can see that, that link there when I watch this. Yeah. Yeah. And in that way, I mean, even like that, that reminds me that the world is, (laughs) the world is strange. And, you know, I think that's, um, that's one of the things I love about the movie is it kind of is so, so strange that it makes it feel even more real. Um, And that's something I really connect with. I mean, that's something I'm just always interested in, uh, you know, delving into those kind of weird details and weird memories. And there's no real villains. That's the other thing I like about it. There are flawed people in their family. I mean, and there's, you know, people who make 
bad choices in love and their relationships. There's no villains. And another thing that I think is really beautiful about it is it ends on a photo of what you would imagine are the ancestors who'd first come over from Italy and what they hoped for their family. And it's right after they had taken a photo and just touches my heart every time I watch it and thinking about um, these people who left their home um, to build a new one and the people carrying on. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's terrific. It's just, uh, you know, and just cage is so good. In it. Yes. Well, next up we have wild at heart, which I'm going to let you introduce. Okay. Uh, well, I'm not going to do as good of a job at, at introductions as you, so I apologize. Oh, no, not okay. But, um, but yeah, so uh, David Lynch's Wild at Heart from 1990, um, based on a novel by Barry Gifford, which I think also came out in 1990. I don't know how that worked. Yeah. I guess David Lynch read it, uh, read it ahead of time and was working on it before maybe even the novel came out. Um, and yeah, the, the film won the, the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival, and it's Cage plays um sailor ripley and laura Dern plays lula um lula pace fortune i think is her full name i don't think you ever hear it in the movie maybe yeah. you do no you, you do you do um and they they're just it's a it's it's a full david lynch experience it's kind of david lynch in you know just um i don't know it's it's actually to revisit it now post Fire Walk with Me and Lost Highway and Twin Peaks: The Return and Mulholland Drive and and the movie you know in light of the movies that came after it I think it's really interesting to see just how much it has in common with um, the the post um, Wild at Heart Lynch filmography um, they play uh, Sailor and Lula are kind of couple couple on the lamb um, he gets out of in the beginning he he commits a crime kind of prompted yeah. by something that happens um, at the behest of Lula's mother played by Diane Ladd and he goes to jail for it. And then in the main action of the, of the movie um, he's released from jail, picks up Lula and they kind of hit the road, break parole. And it's, it's really a movie. I mean, there is a, there's a, th a couple of through lines in terms of uh, the narrative um, where um, they get kind of tangled up in a, in a heist or, or sailor gets tangled up in a heist in, in Texas. Um, and then Lula's mother and, um, her boyfriend played by Harry Dean Stanton are kind of in pursuit of, of sailor and Lula. And there's also a mob boss character who's tangled up in all of this named Marcelo Santos. And, um, it's got some narrative through lines for sure, but it's mostly a movie built on kind of weird encounters and yeah. storytelling, storytelling stories within story stories within the story. And, um, and it's also a movie that uh, like, like it's director is obsessed with uh, the wizard of Oz. Um, mm -hmm. so there's a lot of weird wizard of Oz stuff in it. Um, and it's a movie that yes. I saw. I saw very young. Um, it was my introduction to the world of Barry Gifford. Um, it was not my introduction to David Lynch because I'd already, luckily, um, seen Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks at a very young age, and mm -hmm. that had kind of shifted my whole outlook on the world. Um, so I was I was very excited for Wild at Heart when it came out. Um, I think I was, you know. 
I, I probably didn't get to see it in the movies. I was that young. So I, I think I saw it as soon as it came out on VHS. It was one of the first VHS tapes I like. I asked for it for my birthday. I I got it. I mean, this is when VHS tapes were still kind of expensive, I think. Um, and so I was probably 13 when I saw it. Um, and yeah, I read I read the book immediately after seeing it. I, I loved it. Um, it's it's uh, also very weird, weird and funny movie. And um, there's just you know it's a highly highly quotable movie. It is. Um, and you know, especially the sailor and Lula scenes. I mean, there are there are things that stray away from them that get kind of uncomfortable. <laughs> there's uh, the whole. Yeah. The whole Willem Dafoe character Woo. is really, really hard. Really to, out there, really, yes. Really hard to watch some of that, but it's a, it, you know, it's a, it's a movie that, um, again, I'm a, I'm a, you know, David Lynch apostle through and through. So you won't really ever hear me saying bad anything bad about any any movie of his. But um, this is one that remains, you know, just kind of a just kind of a classic to me. This is one that I actually had not seen since it had come out. It wasn't my favorite then. I think I just didn't know what to make of it. My first experience with Lynch was um, Twin Peaks. I remember um, as a girl, like my mom had watched the pilot and then they re-aired them, I think, in the summer. And she was so obsessed that uh, she had like a notebook out and was writing down the name of all the characters and all the clues and like Jay under the fingernails. Like I vividly remember this as a girl. (laughs) And so um, the show scared the hell out of me, but I was just addicted as well. I didn't know what I was watching. And um, so that was my first exposure to Lynch. And then I saw this um, because I loved like, um, Isabella Rosalini and I remember hearing she was involved and so yes I saw this it was very strange what was hilarious though is uh, I was going to Catholic school super briefly around this period and a girl I went to school with was around the time they were doing promo for the movie uh, I don't know if it had come out on video or whatever um, so at a gas station they were giving away t-shirts And so in like middle school, my friend who was super conservative had this wild at heart shirt that said wild at heart and weird on top. And she had no idea what this movie was. And I didn't want to like tell her, you know, what it was. So that was very funny. But um, you brought up the novel. I have never read the book uh, by Barry Gifford. I guess what happened is Monty Montgomery, um, who Lynch had worked with, had oh yeah, the, lo- the love. That's the guy who did the love list too, right? Money yes, with the, Catherine the cowboy. Yeah, the, exactly. The cowboy, uh, the cowboy in Mulholland Drive. Yes, Bonnie Montgomery, yeah. really tight with Lynch, um, had somehow gotten a copy of the galley or something, and originally he asked Lynch. He said, you know, I want to direct this. Would you executive produce this? And Lynch is like, well, I want to read the novel, but what happens if I fall in love with it? And sure enough, he actually did fall in love oh, with yeah. it. Yeah, wrote the draft, I guess, in like a week. Said it was initially really depressing, depraved, just sad. And then he injected all of his, you know, stuff into it, like his obsession with Elvis uh, for Cage. And he said when he was reading it, he was already seeing Cage and seeing Dern. And then thinking of Dern as... Um, 
sort of a Marilyn Monroe type. So working in these like iconography, um, classic movie archetypes, which is sort of funny because that's what we think of when we think of the loveless. Um, Willem Dafoe has a great interview where he actually talks about that as um, being more iconography than character. And I think that's kind of a charge that gets leveled at David Lynch sometimes. And it's fair to an extent um, in places, but he's doing it for a reason. But there are some moments of real, like, touching humanity that that's surprising in this. So I think as a girl, it was like, what the hell is this? And then um, watching it again, luckily my friend had it on their Plex server because it's a hard one to find. Um, yeah. yeah. And so I watched it again. I was really taken in by it. Love Me is actually my favorite Elvis song. So when Cage started singing it, I mean, I was freaking out basically as hard as, like, Laura Dern was um it's a fascinating movie it's a weird one the diane lad laura dern relationship especially because everyone knows <laughs> you know they are mother and daughter playing this like evil witch and dorothy thing in the movie it's very very strange um it pushes pushes it in the uncomfortable places defoe and those teeth my god yeah, yeah. There's yeah, some wild stuff going on it's very surreal feels kind of stream of consciousness in places and yeah, there's nothing else like it. No, yeah, and I tried. I tried, you know, rewatching it this time. I tried to imagine, you know, what what I saw at age thirteen, what yeah, I was, I was what I was responding to, and yeah, I think I thought. I mean, I, I know I thought that there was just stuff that I'd never seen before. You know, I'd never oh, yeah. seen anything like the scene where he takes the mic in the club and starts singing to her and, <laughs> and um, you know, and I've never seen anything like, you know, my, maybe my favorite scene, maybe still my favorite scene in the movie when they, when they stop the car because she can't get anything but like bad news on the radio and they get yes. out and they just start karate chopping, you know, kicking, karate kicking yeah. the air and dancing. Um yeah, I just, I'd never seen anything as a, especially at that age. I mean, I'd seen some Lynch, so I kind of was, I guess, equipped for, for that on some level, but I think that this one even took some of the things to a totally different um, place. And yeah, I just thought, I mean, I thought it was a, a beautiful movie then I think, and I, I still do think it's a beautiful movie. And obviously it's, it's a, it's a love story. It's a love story in a lot of ways filtered through, you know david lynch's vision um and you know it was the beginning i guess of that um kind of cage period where he he went pretty heavily elvisy rockabilly ish um yeah and you know i responded to that i love that i just thought it was uh i mean laura dern is absolutely amazing in it but i i definitely as a kid and and still now you know i'm totally blown away by by Cage and by, um, by the way he just, just the, the energy he brings to it. It's just, it is, it's a wild, fun performance. Yes. There's that line on the internet, like choices were made. Choices were definitely made with this one. A hundred percent. Like the snakeskin jacket was very much a Cage uh, addition. He asked Lynch like, well, what if I wore this? And yeah, uh, yeah so that worked in as well. Yeah, there's a lot going on with this one. I mean, all of these movies, basically. Um, yeah, he and I didn't, you know, I mean, um, the, the 
the lines are amazing and the delivery, you know, the delivery is amazing. And as a kid, I think when I, I was shy and I didn't really know how to talk to people and I, I would often kind of lean on movies that I loved. And I was always, as I was always quoting wild at heart and always bringing things like, you know, did I ever tell you that this snakeskin jacket is a symbol of my individuality and belief yes. personal freedom into conversations randomly. And, um, I just, I, it was so, yeah, it was, it was a wild, um, thing to experience as a kid. And, and it's still, you know, it's still just such a, just a, it's a classic. It's just a, you know, and it's a classic cage performance. I think it's, you know, if I, if I had to list my favorite performances of his, um, it's definitely, you know, it's definitely top two, at, uh, you know, up there for me. Definitely, definitely top two. I'd say maybe top three, um, if not number one. Um, and he's he's just he's just on fire in it. Yeah, and it was such a divisive movie too. Kind of like I guess all you could say, arguably all the Lynch. I mean, I think everybody pretty much loved the Straight Story and Mulholland Drive. I think was pretty universally um, loved, but. You know, this was one of them, Lost Highway, Blue Velvet, that definitely divided people. I've heard Lynch talk about like uh, 300. He says, you know, I mean, he's exaggerating, like 300 walkouts when they showed this in test screenings, like people just didn't know what to make of it. Uh, I also remember because I read um, Isabella Rossellini's book in the 90s. I always just loved her as a as a girl and also I yeah. found out she had scoliosis so I was like, "Ooh, now I really love her." And so when she was sharing um anecdotes of her relationship with David Lynch, she told this really great story about when this won the Palme d'Or and um how uh Lynch, you know, obviously she was in the cast so she came up too but she was also dating him and he kissed her and then very shortly after that um they broke up and when she was talking to martin scorsese who was her ex-husband he said i i knew that was coming well how did you know because he kissed you in public and he you know he was a very (laughs) private guy and he didn't it was almost like he was kissing you goodbye. Like that was the end. And she's like, you're such a director. You know, you saw this little piece of behavior, but you didn't think to call me up and give me a heads up party. Like, like maybe my boyfriend is going to dump me. And uh, so I thought that was very funny that only a director would see that behavior and know what that meant. But yeah. So now whenever I think of um, Rosalini and Lynch together, I think of uh, them, uh, accepting this award yeah 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 and it, it was i mean i remember i remember that even then and i think probably that's kind of lynch's most divisive period um just i mean wild at heart fire walk with me and lost highway are the ones i think people are most kind of either yeah. they love it or they hate it and i love i love all of them and and um you know it's uh he's it's it's kind of david lynch in excess mode i guess all all three of those movies but i don't know if that really that's kind of not a phrase i should use i guess because i like i like that mode (laughs) yeah it's just not you know i think compared to probably when i say that i think I, i guess what people were responding to at the time was because twin peaks was on television there was some restraint there that you know was kind of dictated by yeah you know, network tele- mm-hmm. television so uh, you know those movies in particular i think he was 
fully going against that, you know, and going hard against it. And so there was a good Felix in the moment to me. Um, and I know not to others too, but it could feel probably over, you know, excessive. And, mm -hmm. um, but cage, yeah, cage, cage is just, um, it's a, I don't know. I mean, I wish they, I wish, you know, I wish they'd work together again because it's such a good, again, as with John Patrick Shanley, I think it's a really ideal match. You know, David Lynch is kind of an too. ideal match for him. Yeah. Yeah. It brings out different sides of him. It's also just such a courageous role by Laura Dern, who's worked with Lynch so well. And really, just like Cage goes to the swings for the fences. She's kind of the female Cage, essentially. And there was yeah. this question on Twitter a while ago, like, who is the female Nicolas Cage? I mean, that's kind of reductive to say like the male Meryl Streep or that kind of thing, but yeah. um, they are so well matched. And I think it was really cool to see them together in this at the peak of their powers. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And she's, I mean, she is, she's gone on to have a really interesting, varied career too. And she's, yeah, she's brilliant in it. I mean, yep. it's there. They have just such great chemistry. They um, do. And I think they're both still, I mean, they're both in their early twenties mm -hmm. uh, at that, at that point. Um, and it's just, yeah, I mean, it's again, operatic and, and wild and um, just nothing, nothing like it. And no, I, that I seems have, to be a, re a recurring theme. Yeah. I should have mentioned in my intro or my rambling thing that passed as an intro, um, that there are other books in the series that, that they're, you know, um, oh, Barry there? Gifford. Okay. Yeah. Barry Gifford wrote seven more novels uh, in the, in the sailor and Lula cycle. So there's a big collection you can get from seven stories press uh, for like 20 bucks that are all eight of the books. Cause they're, they're pretty, they're pretty short books. And Perdita Durango, which is also a film has got, um, a, a sailor and Lula, connection so that's that's included but um but most of the other ones are about them and their their kids and they're they're um more fully connected to the to the story but obviously the book is you know the book is also is also wild and weird and, and wonderful but doesn't have a good amount of the the really you know the infusion of lynch stuff that's in the in the movie Okay. Yeah. And you mentioned Barry Gifford. There is, we should say, a new documentary that's coming out. It's going to be playing at the Chicago, I want to say the Critics Festival, um, directed by Rob Christopher. I was one of the producers reached out to me on behalf of it recently. And yes, it's called Roy's World, Barry Gifford's Chicago. And it's going to be narrated yeah. by Willem Dafoe, Matt Dillon, Lily Taylor, kind of taking a look at all of uh, his fiction and all the adaptations over the years. I know very little about Barry Gifford. So well, yeah, I've actually, this is the one time I can pull this card on one of my film writer friends, but I've actually seen it because, Ooh. um, there you go. I, I wrote, yeah, I wrote a, um, I wrote a profile of Barry Gifford last year for Southwest Review. Oh, and cool. So they sent me, a, they sent me a digital screener of, of it and it's great. It's really, it's more about, um, so he's got, he's got a series of books and stories he's written posts for the most part, post Sailor and Lula about a character named Roy, which is a very kind of autobiographical, yes. almost Nick Adams-ish 
kind of character. Um, and they were all of, you know, or the, the, the bulk of the Roy stories were collected in a book that came out earlier this year called Roy's world. And the, the documentary deals with, uh, Roy and the stories kind of travels all over the place. He's in Chicago, he's in Key West, he's in Cuba, he's in Mississippi, he's in a lot of places. Um, but the the documentary deals mostly with Roy's Chicago stories and Barry Gifford's time in Chicago. It's really it's really great and you know great narration from as you said Matt Dillon, Lily Taylor, and others. Um, so yeah, definitely definitely checking worth checking out if you're a Barry Gifford fan. But also his his Roy stories are just you know some of my favorite stuff of his. That's so cool. Yes. And then after Wild at Heart, this leads us into our next one. And in 1993, Nicolas Cage played his second disabled protagonist that we're discussing today. This time, not in a comedy per se, but actually in one of my favorite neo-noirs of the 1990s in the form of Kill Me Again and the last seduction filmmaker John Dahl's effective crackerjack little southwestern thriller of classic noir archetypes and mistaken identity via 1993's red rock west an out-of-work drifter unable to land or keep a job due to a war injury of his leg when the ex-marine wanders into the town of red rock hoping to find work a bar owner played by jt walsh mistakes him for a dallas hitman arriving in town to kill his beautiful young wife, Laura Flynn Boyle. Speaking of another Lynch tie in there, keeping his mouth shut and playing along so that he can pocket some quick cash. When Cage's character goes to warn Boyle that her life is in danger, she gives him a counter offer, telling him she'll pay to have him take out JT Walsh instead. Of course, things get even more complicated when the real killer, played by Dennis Hopper, arrives in town. Featuring multiple twists, plenty of pulse-pounding moments where Cage tries to escape Red Rock but keeps boomeranging right back again and again. This largely forgotten yet acclaimed neo-noir is a thrillingly good time. So what's your take on Red Rock West? Uh, it's another one I love. and I, yeah, I, saw it, um, I saw it when it came out. Uh, and you know, I, I was really into John Dahl, right? You know, pretty much, I was already loving you know anything that could be perceived probably as neo noir, and that was such a rich period um, in the, yes. especially the the early the mid nineties, I guess. Um, and yeah, I, I loved it. I loved Nicolas Cage, as I said. So I think every every Nicolas, that's probably why it was initially on my radar. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think it was the first, it was, Last Seduction came out after it, right? So I think it was the first John Dahl movie I saw. Um, and so, yeah, it was probably on my radar because of Cage. I also love Dennis Hopper, and, you know, and Lara Flynn Boyle would have been on, you know, somebody I liked because of Twin Peaks. Yep. Um, and yeah, I loved it, loved it right away. I loved um, the, the feel, the feel of it. Um, you know, it just, it was one of those movies that, hooked me in in terms of atmosphere I, I loved it felt like a at that point it felt like a good little bit of a shift for cage i'd never seen him kind of in that hang door hang dog noir um you know role i don't think yeah. before this um it, you know it, it was it was something that just felt really 
perfect for him. I, yeah, I mean, I, I loved seeing him and even as a kid and now rewatching it, um, I really loved seeing him and Dennis Hopper and scenes together. I mean, what a, you know, what a mm-hmm. great combination of people, you know, in their, in their primes. I mean, all, all of them, I guess are kind of Lynch, uh, at that point, all of them are Lynch, have Staples. some connection to yeah. Lynch. Yeah. And seeing them in their prime and seeing kind of cage go a little bit more. I mean, he's kind of got a couple of outburst scenes in this movie, but for the most part, it's pretty reserved, almost like a Dan Durya-ish kind of. Yeah. Role. He's like a stand in almost for us kind of. Yeah. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. you see Hopper come in and Hopper just be kind of batshit insane. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And it was a movie I, you know, I loved, I saw it several times in the nineties. And then it was kind of impossible to see for a long time. Yeah. Uh, as far as I really know, I think it I think it got a VHS release. I had it, I must have had it taped somehow off of I didn't have cable, so somebody must have taped it for me and given it to me. Um, but I didn't I don't think it ever got a DVD release. I don't think it ever got a Blu-ray release, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so it's it's streaming on stars now. And when I saw that, you know, and that's only been up there for a little while, I think or six months or something yeah um, when i saw it was mm-hmm. i wanted to re yeah i wanted to revisit it because it had been a while and it was always always stood out in my memory as one of my favorite cage performances and i think it really it holds up wonderfully in every way it does it's the ultimate word of mouth movie because just like wild at heart didn't go over well with audiences uh the test screenings same thing happened with this one they didn't know how to market it. And it's a very complicated one because it's not really a Western. It's not fully noir, but it is. It's also kind of funny. I mean, it's sort of on the, it's not really an erotic thriller. Like it's kind of got little elements of all of these genres thrown together. So it wasn't very easy to market. They weren't exactly sure how to do that. But then, um, Bill Banning, an owner of a San Francisco movie theater uh, who had seen like a version of the film, I don't know where, um, just kind of put it in his art house theater. And then it did really well. Enough people saw it that it got some good press. And then it just went on a little art house tour across America and was the little engine that could. And boy, critics loved it. I think I first heard of it on probably... um, you know, Siskel and Ebert, I remember them raving about it. And we loved uh, Nicolas Cage in my house. So we had this on video. But yes, I do remember there was kind of a bare bones DVD for a while. But then they pulled that one or it was hard to find that Germany had a Blu-ray. So it's always been one of those that is hard to track down every time I would watch it. Um, people would be asking like, how are you seeing this? How are you seeing it? You know, I'm like, oh, I have the movie. And uh, yeah, it's one that did kind of gain a word of mouth buzz. It's one also that every person I've recommended it to has liked it. I don't know anybody who has seen this movie and is like, you know, I just wasn't feeling Red Rock West. I think it does yeah. have, especially if you kind of enjoy exactly all these noir thrillers but also western but like dark comedy i mean there's a lot to this one i love how hitchcockian it is um like there's some callbacks with the the leg issue which is a sign of impotence and goes right back to rear window and then 
um, using the front bumper on Hopper's car, kind of like the crop duster in North by Northwest. So it's just a fun movie. Yeah, I love it. It is. Yeah. And I, I agree with you about all that. And I think uh, speaking of the, the, obviously, I think I like tonal shifts, but, you know, it's yes. kind of a theme that runs through, runs through a lot of the stuff I've picked and talked about. Um, I like, and I like, that's what I like about Cage. I mean, that he is somebody who can kind of simultaneously do all those things and is always wanting Great to point. experiment and is always wanting to, um, you know, you know, whether it's from movie to movie or in the same movie. And that's true of Lynch too. I think, you know, Lynch is, Lynch is all over the place tonally. And that's something <laughs> yeah. I've always, always loved about him. But yeah, I think you really do see it in this, uh, in this movie with Cage because it is, uh, my friend Jack um, calls it Blood Simple meets Groundhog Day, uh, which is kind of an accurate description of it, I think. That if you is had to, like, clever. Yeah. An, an elevator kind of pitch or this meets that pitch um, because it, you know, it is this, I mean, it's hilarious that they just keep winding up back in the town. And it's yeah. just this cycle that they can't get out of. And there is a real element of, of dark comedy in it that really, you know, comes a little kafka like yes yeah and once 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 dennis hopper comes in it's really full-blown like more 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 apparent i think but um but cage has some great comic moments in it too but he's also just got this real again sincerity and sweetness and just just such a a, a great uh, just underrated performance i think of his yeah, and it's so deceptive, too, because it takes place in the Southwest, and we think of the wide open spaces and stuff, but there's nothing more claustrophobic and, like, dark and ominous than him winding up in the same bar or the same little rooms again yeah. and again and again. It's like, you know, yeah, there's the desert out there, but he just can't get out of it. So, yes, I love that description by your friend. That was a good one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a great one. It's definitely one, you know, like like we've been saying it's been it's been kind of hard to see and um if people haven't seen it you should definitely definitely track it down or get stars for a month and watch it because uh it's it's one of the best i mean to me one of the best kind of 90s neo-noirs one of cage's best performances you know yeah. just an underrated underrated movie in, in every every way i wish it would get a good blu-ray release or something it's yeah. really deserving of it here in the states that would be wonderful yeah, yeah i'm the oddball out as much as i enjoy the last seduction and it's brilliant i actually prefer red rock west i don't know why maybe it's the disability angle maybe it's the southwestern thing i'm not sure what it is so i'm always recommending it to people and they're like thanks because i can't find it but yes <laughs> we need it over here yeah, yeah no i'm i'm with you i mean i, I like the last seduction a lot too i yeah. love it uh, actually but i, I would take this over it for sure i mean mm. a lot of that honestly a lot of that probably comes down to cage i mean you have yep well, you have linda fiorentino is amazing but peter oh, bird yeah you know, i come on i'll take i'll take cage over peter bird any day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um yeah. but it's a yeah it's a it's a great it's a great little movie it's just really efficient and economical and it is you know, does it's doesn't doesn't drag it's it's uh it's got no. all those different elements you said it's got that that kind of darkness it's got you know efficient backstory you know it doesn't go too wild with his backstory though it could have i think um mm -hmm. it's just just such a well-done movie on every level 
Yeah, it's like right under 100 minutes, and that includes credits. And yeah, they don't dawdle. It's perfect. Definitely. Yeah, I'm going to start. This is when I'm going to start sounding like an old man and just be like, they just don't, truly just don't make them like, like, oh, I know. Anymore. We're going to be like the get off our lawn <laughs> film podcast. No, it's yeah. kind of it. The 90s were better, people. No, I'm just kidding. But, uh, but yes. Well, next up, we have our last film of the day, Joe. I'm going to let you take it away. Yeah, sure. So this is, so I skipped around. I mean, like I said, it was really, it's so hard, hard to pick um, you know, five cage performances. And I know you covered some of the other ones that I, um, that I love. Um, mm-hmm. Bringing Out the Dead is one of my favorites. And yeah. there's just so, so many to choose from and so many recent ones to choose from. Uh, he was amazing in Mandy. He was amazing in Pig this year. Um, but Joe is one that sticks out um, in my, in my mind as, you know, one of his great, performances so the film came out in 2013 uh, directed by david gordon green based on one of my favorite novels by one of my favorite novelists and um i'm, I'm talking to you here from oxford mississippi i'm from new york but you know you know I, i've moved yeah. down here years ago and a big part of the reason i moved down here is because this writer larry brown was my my favorite writer and i just you know he was he was uh, he had passed away by the time i got here but, um, but, you know, his books really made Oxford a place I wanted to come to. So Joe is a novel that he published in 1991. Um, and it's, uh, you know, when I'm telling people where to start with Larry Brown, uh, usually I think, um, for the, he's also a great short story writer and there are a couple of great short story collections, but typically, um, I tell people to start with Joe. I think it's, you know, it's his, in some ways, maybe his best novel. I love his novel Father and Son a lot too, but Joe is, is um, probably remains my favorite. Um, and so, yeah, when I heard that David Gordon Green was adapting this, and I like David Gordon Green a lot, I was still, you know, as you are when you hear any, any literary work you love is being adapted, you're a little nervous Mm -hmm. even if it's even if it's somebody you generally like and at that point I mean you know David Gordon this was David Gordon Green you know post uh, George Washington I love is one of my favorite movies yeah brilliant uh, this is kind of you know he'd been on a run of like you know Pineapple Express and Your Highness and had drifted away from the early kind of indie drama stuff that he'd done and um so I was nervous that that you know that this was happening even. Um, I was glad, but also nervous. Glad because I, I hoped it meant that people would rediscover the novel a little bit, which I think, which I think happened. Um, so the, the movie and, and the book is about this character, Joe Ransom, who is played by Nicolas Cage in the film. Um, and he kind of is a self-destructive guy who uh, runs a, a crew out in the woods um, where they, well, out on these kind of farms. The book is set in North Mississippi. Um, the, the movie is kind of, I think, pretty clearly, I don't know if they ever say it um, in the movie, but you you see license plates and you see signs up that say it's Texas. I think that was just a matter of, that was where it was cheaper for David Gordon Green to shoot the movie. He lives in Texas. And, so that, that's how that happened. But uh, in the book, it's it's North Mississippi. And, and this is something that would happen around here a lot, that they would go out and, 
have these crews poisoning trees that they had deemed kind of worthless so they could plant um, pines. And so Joe Ransom leads a crew of these guys and he crosses paths with this um, young kid um, who is, um, well, totally, I just blanked on the, the son's name, Gary, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Gary, so. Gary's this, I just can't remember the dad's name now. Um, oh, Wade, Gary and Wade, sorry. Oh, um, G- Gary is the kid um, played by, uh, what's his name, Ty Sheridan, is that the yes. kid's name? Um, in, the, in the movie, they cross paths and he's just a, the kid is a honest, hardworking kid and he's he's got a father who's a worthless horrible drunk um named wade and they're they're kind of itinerant um they they live in a an abandoned house um he's got a mother and two sisters i think you only see one of the sisters and and joe because the other sister has run off um and she has a whole book written about her faye oh wow um by larry brown um and so their their worlds kind of crash together, and Joe really takes to the kid and and kind of um, becomes a father figure to him since his father is such such a piece of shit, and mm-hmm. um, and this all kind of comes crashing to a head as you could imagine. There's also some other drama revolving around Joe in the town. Um, he had previously done some time in jail for assaulting an officer. Um, and he's kind of always on the verge of doing it again because the cops yeah. keep messing cops keep messing with him and he he just kind of keeps challenging them and part of him the self-destructive part seems to want to keep you know risking it and want, seems to want to go back to jail or want want to get himself in trouble um but the the light for him in this you know in this movie in the book is this relationship he develops with with this kid Gary, who's about 15. Um, and he's just kind of, again, this honest, hardworking kid. And so you have, you have Gary who is kind of the represents the good. And then you have Wade who represents the bad and Joe who's kind of somewhere in between, but has, you know, is fundamentally a decent, good person. Um, though he's got trouble and got issues. Um, and he's kind of this, this, um, character in the middle, and um, yeah, I mean, just you know, the book had a huge, huge influence on me, on, on my work, but also just on my life as a reader and as a writer. Um, you know, Larry Brown was was one of my key discoveries. Um, and I think the movie is, you know, uh, the movie is really good, I think. I mean, I think it's a very good movie based on a very great, very great book, um, ultimately. Um, which is really what more can you ask for when you when you really love a book um, just that they don't fuck it up um, yeah and that they that they remain true to it and a lot of what works in this movie for me comes down to Nicholas well the performances are all really good actually I think I mean I think Ty Sheridan's pretty amazing very very good yep I think that the guy who plays Wade who this is the only movie credit he's yep. ever his only movie credit uh gary poulter i think his name is yeah he like died uh, right around I then mm-hmm. and i feel like i feel like i read somewhere along the line that he was a non-actor that david gordon green just kind of plucked up out of a, somewhere yep. in austin um and but cage is just uh just brilliant in, in this part and just uh you know it's one of his 
restrained performances. It's it's much more in line with something like Pig, I think. Um, you know, where he is just kind of pretty. It's pretty quiet performance in terms of um, you know other Cage stuff, um, but haunting, emotional, humanistic, just really kind of gutting, sad, beautiful performance. And um, like I said, you know, it's a it's a movie that. I liked when I first saw it, when it came out, they had a screening here in Oxford, you know, um, Larry Brown, because Larry Brown's family is all still here. And, um, and I responded to it pretty, pretty well that first time, but I've revisited it a few times since. And I, I really, um, maybe this time, most of all, um, was most affected by it, especially the, the second half of it, I think is particularly good and particularly um, gets gets really the the feel of Larry Brown's work down. So, sorry again, another another long rambling introduction. Sorry. No, you're fine. It makes me really want to read the book because I have to be honest. There are elements I liked about the film. Um, it feels very like neo realism inspired, also sociological. That kind of character based storytelling. It reminded me a little bit of. Michael Apted's fictional films. He made the Up documentaries, which I love. Like he's very interested in people. And I feel like this is, but I don't know that I'm in love with it as a film, except, you know, the performances are great. It's a gorgeous looking movie. There's a lot to it that I respond to. I'm kind of drawn to the same things you are, like like the Huckleberry Finn elements. Uh, It feels a little like Sling Blade would go well with this, George Washington. With David Gordon Green, my favorite is All the Real Girls, which is the one that he kind of burst onto the scene with. Um, That is my favorite. Um, And, you know, there's something to these movies. I like him in this mode. I mean, Pineapple Express, I thought was a blast when I saw it, but it is kind of cool to see him go back and tell these um, really moving Southern stories. And so I... I want to like it more than I do. I thought Cage was especially great. I recently watched um, Pig, actually, the other day. I was kind of uh, had a similar reaction to Pig. I didn't love it as much as other people I know did, except for Cage. I thought he's remarkable in it. There's stuff I love about the films, but I'm just not maybe buying them 100% the way they're presented I don't know but I do want to read um, the book because everything you were just uh, describing sounded completely up my alley so yeah 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 and I think that's I imagine that's what you know Nicolas Cage was responding to here I mean the the material was so so rich I do think you know and again I I I think it's a uh, a great great book Um, I think the film you know is is good is is very good in in a lot of ways Um, but I, I do, I get what you're saying. I mean, I think, uh, you know, it's a little bit kind of confused as to what it wants to be or something. It's, you know, there's a... Yeah, I felt like the that, end kind of just came out of nowhere a little bit with the sister. Like I wanted more of that maybe. I don't know. Yeah. But, and there's a lot, obviously a lot of stuff cut out, of the, yeah, cut out from the book. I would but, imagine. You know, it does. Um, it does feel a little bit like, you know, he's at times like he's trying to make a Terrence Malick ish yeah. kind of movie oh that's a good other t- yeah yeah other times he's trying to you know he's trying to do something like what nomadland did um most recently in terms of using not you know 
using non surrounding actors with non actors. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, yeah, I mean, I think there's a, a, to me again, as I said, I think it revealed more or worked more for me as a film on subsequent viewings, but um, that could uh, be, yeah. Uh, again, you know, a lot of that came down to the performances though. I think those three central performances are just, brilliant okay. but mm -hmm. cage is um cage is particularly just you know in in uh just this great mode here that and, you know and this is i think people sometimes get into their minds that with cage there was just a long period of shit movies um, i know but he never really had i mean he's made so many movies that there are bad ones but it's never far between great stuff and you know no, you're um, exactly right yeah so I was, yeah i was really glad you chose it because i know i saw it when it came out but it didn't do much for me so it was good to go back and to revisit it um i had been recently talking to somebody about cage's 21st uh, century roles here and they were like well it's been years since he's he's always i mean not always some of these are really cheesy movies but exactly what you were saying i mean match sick men is probably my favorite of the, yeah. the the performances in the last couple decades um but you know pig that performance is remarkable this is another one it's like the work is there he will show up for the right thing. mandy is an, another incredible Mandy's performance great. my god yeah, yeah. Yeah, Don't I mean, write them off, adapt, everyone. <laughs> adapt, adaptations of two thousands, right? That's that two thousand two. So yeah, I mean, I mean, just that Matchstick Men, and then you know, there's Bad Lieutenant, Protocol, New Orleans, and sure. there's you know, it's two thousand nine, and then there's this in two thousand thirteen, and then Mandy, whenever it was that sixteen or seventeen, and Pig. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so there's always interesting stuff happening, and um, and I think you know, again, he's he's adventurous in terms yes. of what he chooses and how he approaches it and watching i think it can sometimes feel like it's been a while since he did something mm -hmm. um you know like like this or like pig because he is so adventurous in terms of the roles he plays and, and also just the fact that he kind of chases you know weird things and, uh, and does movies yeah. that nobody nobody's expects them to do even following i mean he's always done that though even following you know like following leaving las vegas with with uh, the rock and and con air was at the time like what is this what, what is, is this guy doing, doing? yes um i mean it's just you know it's just now that the i guess the the landscape has has changed and he's mostly not doing it like big studio movies or bigger movies he's mostly you know bouncing between kind of indie movies like you know pig and uh, or more independent movies like pig and mandy and more kind of vod stuff and mm -hmm. you know um but it, yeah this is uh this is definitely i think um I, I don't think i don't think we've mentioned it yet we we should have mentioned it or i should have mentioned it um that scout tafoya article that came out i think earlier this year about his whole career Cage's whole career called, I think the article is called The Whole Parade. It's on uh, rogerebert.com. Um, oh, it's really brilliant. For that. Yeah, it's a really brilliant kind of overview of, of Cage's career. And I think Scout Tafoya watched every single Cage movie to write it, you know, what, 117 or whatever, whatever the current number is. 
And I think he, you know, in that, if I'm remembering correctly, I think he settles on Joe as kind of a, a standout or one of his favorites or what he thinks of as one of Cage's best. Um, and I, I think so too. And, I, and that's nothing, you know, that's not to say by any stretch, it's the best movie that he was involved in. Um, I don't think it is, but I do think it is one of his, one of his greatest performances. Oh yeah. No, it's a r- remarkable performance. And I know our first short list of cage titles to choose from today was at least twice as long. And who knows, we <laughs> might have to do a part two of this topic, but before we go, we have touched on a few, but for those listening, are there any others that maybe we didn't mention or you just want to reiterate people should check out? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I really like this movie from, uh, I guess it was 2017 or 18. I can't remember called Between Worlds on Netflix um, okay. um, with him and uh, Tomka Jansen. I can't remember the director's name it was her first i think it was her first or second film um it takes place in alabama he's a he's a truck driver it's a weird it's a weird one um but i really enjoyed it it's uh i i'm not going to try to summarize the plot because it's it's, it's a little true. okay it's a little it's a little crazy in a good way um but it's one of his more memorable recent performances i think that's not just mandy or color out of space or pig or the kind of bigger more the ones that have gotten the more attention um and you know of course Uh i i i I didn't pick i didn't pick it for this um but i am i you know i know people have mixed feelings about um leaving las vegas i i I watched that movie a lot um as a teenager and uh, i think it's a brilliant performance on his part i know people kind of tend to think it's like you know maybe one of his more his one of his less interesting performances even though it's the one he won the oscar for Mm. Um, but i do think it's a really i think it's a really brilliant performance and i rewatched it not that long ago and um you know everything that still works for me about that movie hinges on him really um i don't connect with the movie quite in the way i did at 18 for whatever reason but i think it's a brilliant uh brilliant performance uh raising yes. arizona of course i love uh, yeah absolutely I mean, you know, we could go a bad lieutenant port of call new orleans is a batshit beautiful mm-hmm. performance i mean there's just there's so much so much interesting stuff to choose from he's never um you know to me he's just never not fun to watch yeah no what about absolutely. you is there anything that anything that we didn't get oh, to that you, uh... you know i i just i love watching him as well um yeah i know obviously it doesn't stack up in terms of one of his most powerful performances but you and i did have a little exchange in twitter dm over uh it could happen to you and how like just lovely it is it's kind of an old-fashioned um it feels like a 50s movie or a 40s movie and it's just a sweet like the jimmy stewart side of nicholas cage and that was an unexpected thing to come out of the 90s when you had him sort of doing these leaving las vegas and then he went the bruckheimer route um so that was an unexpected one i love of course match sick men i mentioned that bringing out the dead is a brilliant movie we both love it i talked about it with megan earlier this year um yeah there's just so many 
Yes. Yeah, I, I I think I said earlier. I think maybe bringing out the dead might be my favorite mm-hmm. performance. My favorite performance of his, and also my just my favorite movie of his. You know that he's in, um, but I'm with you. Yeah, it, it could happen to you. Is it, I love it so much. I just rewatched that earlier this year for the first time in a while. And again, you know, so much of what works about that movie comes down to him and Bridget Fonda and their chemistry. Yeah. It's just such a, such a great movie. Also kiss of death. I didn't mention, I love kiss. Of Ooh, death. I like that remake too. Yes. Yeah. I he love that. Some great, great speeches. My goodness. Yeah. Those Richard great. Price ones. Yeah. It's kind of, kind of a dream team there. You know, it's, I love the original, but the, you know, Richard Price and, 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 and you know, even Caruso, Caruso's, Caruso's still, really good know, in it. Yeah. Caruso's really good in that movie. And, and Cage is just, uh, Cage is wild. Um, of course, I love Face Off and I love, you know, I love, oh, yeah. I love a lot of that stuff. Um, <laughs> but Face Off's probably in a lot of ways, probably the most interesting of those kind of that action. Uh, yeah, that, that 90s, 90s action period. It's the, the greatest, I think. Yeah. Performance wise and movie wise. (laughs) Yeah. It's a blast. Well, so is this. I want to thank you so much, Bill, for doing this. It was a really great way to kick off the weekend. And uh, I just want to thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Jen. It was great talking to you. And um, I really, really appreciate it. Anytime. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.